0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with sports performance consultant Derek Hansen. Thanks for tuning in to episode 183 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So, I'm really excited to bring you this episode with Derek Hansen. So, in this episode, we focus predominantly around microdosing and microdosing, not in a uh, drug sense, but in a uh, but obviously performance sense. So, these next two episodes, so today with Derek and next week with Mike McGuigan, focus around this, uh, this subject. And so it's something that Derek's written a lot about and spoken a lot about and no doubt will in the future as well but in this episode we discuss microdosing in the sense of on field work whether it be sprinting or conditioning so really interesting chat around microdosing and anyone that's read derek's work on this subject um know how well he knows it so it comes across really well in this episode um crystal clear on um on derek's methodology with regards to this uh, this topic so we also discuss uh, warm-ups, which is always a an interesting topic, um, you know, given given its kind of history and its its um, the, the stigma that's attached to it. So really interesting chat there. But um, yeah, it's a fantastic episode with Derek, uh, which I'm sure
1: you'll enjoy. There's two things. One. If I can make the coach think that they came up with the idea, then I usually have success, right? So you kind of fool them into it, like, hey, remember what you said about, you know, we got to get faster and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did say that, right? And so, and then the other the other one is sometimes you have to disguise it and I'll do low intensity work that makes it look like we're beating the hell out of people, but it's more sort of tempo oriented. But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to
0: Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard of Valve Performance, they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the groin bar and the all new Human Track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valveperformance.com uh, or follow them on Twitter at ValPerformance. So their all new Human Track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and 4 IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So, human track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results. With some more to come, which will be openly available via the Val Performance website when they do become available. So, if you, like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit ValPerformance.com or follow them on Twitter at ValPerformance. Also sponsoring this episode today is Force Dex. So big thanks to Force Dex for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit ForceDex.com. But also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com forward slash 139, where co-owner of Forstech Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. Um, it's certainly not a sales pitch for Fourstex. But you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of Forstex uh, as re- with regards to the, the software. So if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. So without further ado, over to the episode with Derek Hansen. Derek Hansen, welcome to the Pace Performance podcast. Thank you for giving up your time.
1: Oh, no problem. Uh, yeah, I've been uh, looking to talk to you for quite a while, Rob, and this is uh, a good a time as any. So Absolutely. It's raining outside, and uh, I'm stuck in the house, so. Ideal.
0: Th- thankfully, <laughs> it's, thankfully, it's not here. It's actually reasonably bright, which is, uh, which is um, not very common, as you know, here. But, um, but yeah, uh, any, anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a little bit of a background on yourself. Uh, current current job roles, what's going on? Yeah, a little bit of background.
1: Um, let's see, where do I start? I had done a lot of work when I was younger. You know, I'm I'm 48 now, and I probably started coaching track when I was a, an athlete in college. So as early as the age 18, so I coached track for I don't know quite a few decades um, at different levels. So starting with young kids, working to college athletes, then working beyond. Um, with, uh, you know, elite, elite athletes, sprinters, jumpers, and then, you know, made this transition probably in the nineties, uh, late nineties to working with athletes of different sports. And it just kind of transitioned into uh, a kind of a strength and conditioning role, um, working with different teams, different athletes, all sports, winter, summer. Um, when you're in Canada, you can't help, but work with a few people who, you know, Tend to slide around on the ice or go down a hill, um, and so uh, from there, uh, worked you know worked again in college athletics for quite a few years. Worked at university in the Vancouver area for about you know twelve to fourteen years, but also was doing uh, consulting work with national teams and uh, eventually professional teams, and seems to have settled. Uh, quite nicely with uh, football, American football, uh, NFL, um, and also have done work NBA, MLS. Uh, you know, maybe a, a smattering of baseball and ice hockey as well. So, um, spending a lot of time now just doing consulting for professional teams and some upper level uh, NCAA college teams uh, on the, you know, everything from doing in services with staff, helping them with specific. Uh, athlete cases, general programming for the off-season or even the in-season, um, and then I do a lot of talks for um, a lot of these teams in conference settings. Or I was at the NFL Combine, did something for the Athletic Trainers Association, NFL Athletic Trainers Association, and then now I'll be going off to do something for the NFL strength coaches for their professional association and do a presentation on um, mostly, you know, a lot of stuff's focusing on injury prevention and how do we keep people healthy and get them back quicker. So that seems, you know, that seems to be my space, whether it's speed development, um, overall strategic planning uh, for teams and their physical preparation and how it relates to keeping people healthy.
0: Nice. I was actually speaking a couple of weeks ago to Jonas Dodu over here. And um, obviously, him is in with his with his track guys and stuff. And he was he was talking to me about um, how kind of in vogue it is from to have guys with um, track backgrounds, obviously, uh, turn their hand to or be involved in, in as a strength coach. Do you think it's a good time for them for the guys that have come through that background um, and have, and are making their way into like you say the, the, the team sport environments?
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really good foundation to be working in a, a, a physiological based sport. So whether it's track, um, swimming, uh, you know, maybe cycling, um, I, I think it gets a little more difficult when you work with cycling, uh, and swimming on the biomechanics side for team sport. Cause you know, I, I like to think that, most team sports involve running. So that's where I've really made a lot of my, um, you know, business was, is like, okay, everybody has to run. Like in football, you actually, American football, you actually have to run into the end zone to score and rugby. You have to cross a line by running or, you know, and even when you pass it's to somebody who's running. So running is kind of, uh, you know, I mean, you could say jumping and throwing too, <laughs> but it's, it's kind of a, an important thing. And and I think a lot of people forget that, and they think, oh, we have to go in the weight room and get stronger and lift this and lift that. And there's very little lifting in sports. Um, I hate to say it, and I think a lot of people are taken back when I present on, you know, running is kind of important. And you know, what do you mean? Or, you know, don't I get to lift a weight? <laughs> and uh, and quite honestly, even when you've when you deal with like uh, shot put or uh, javelin or you know they they have to run too right so uh or they have to move across a circle or you know so so i i really think that if you work with track and field athletes particularly sprinting and jumping you have a leg up pardon the pun on on a lot of people because you know how to get the locomotion piece going and you understand movement you understand that you got to put force into the ground you um You know, you have to have a certain range of motion, you know, through the hips and all that. And it it really translates very easily. Now, does taking a track and field coach and putting them in a team sport environment, you know, solve everything? No, because there's some practical things you have to know about, you know, change of direction and um, and what happens on the field and and just the, the energy systems around that. But I I think it's definitely a good foundation to start from. You know, everybody should, there should be kind of a track and field portion to your uh, education as being a strength coach. And I think that's why maybe I've done well is that a lot of people who, at least in in North America, um, don't know the running piece. Like it's kind of like, oh, I don't do that or I don't know how to do that. So it's it's definitely interesting. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you think that's because people choose one or the other? And it hasn't kind of intermingled, or or what? What's the? What do you think is the case there?
1: Um, I think a lot of stuff is highly segregated and isolated. In 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 again, I'm going to say North America, where if you're the strength coach, they have a facility for you, which is a weight room, right? <laughs> and all that weight room is populated with equipment and there's not a lot of open space and that's traditionally how it's been it's getting better now i think you'll see there's weight rooms with like a they'll have a track and where people can sprint and there's a lot of open space maybe a turf area but uh traditionally you handle lifting weights and i think that's just how it evolved out of the the 60s and then anybody who deals with running you do that on the field and we run when we practice and when we you know we practice soccer american football or rugby That's where the running takes place, right? But you know, there's there's an actual need to separate, you know, certain qualities of running outside of practice. But I think that gets lost in the shuffle. Either you're lifting weights, or doing plyos, or you know, doing something else in the weight room, and then you're doing your practice. But I think there's a middle ground that has been missing.
0: Mm -hmm. So when you've made that transition over from the kind of track background to working with team sports, wherever it may be, basketball. American football. What are the what are the biggest challenges that you came across? Because what I'm what we're seeing over here, well, what I'm seeing over here in the UK is a little bit more openness to have like like the FA, for instance, like we were chatting before. Maybe people from different backgrounds but integrated into soccer, integrated into football. I think that's happening more and more that people are looking outside their specific sport. But obviously, with that comes difficulties with regards to culture and things like that. But from your background and your transitions what was the things that you came up against um that you kind of you had to dial up or dial down
1: Mm -hmm. the the biggest one is that everybody perceives running uh they kind of classify it as you know one sort of unified thing like when you run you run and and a lot of that tends to be bogged down with i would say work capacity type running so You know uh, the the big thing I always get is oh we want you to work on speed and then I start working on speed and they say well a lot of people are standing around they're not moving the whole time I'm like well yeah because trying to improve speed here you know you don't you know you don't have people continuously running for the whole practice to get them faster so there's a huge um, disconnect as to what running can be you know in terms of sprinting versus. Uh, working on you know glycolytic energy systems or aerobic systems and and, and understanding those separations and differences is really important. Um, so that's that's always a big uh, barrier to uh, working with a team and and having them and the coach understand that you know you can run fast or we can you know run really fast and then rest for a bit and get better and, and get faster for very short distances, which I feel. Um, kind of separates, you know, athletes and teams is your ability to, you know, accelerate fast for five, 10 meters, maybe 15, maybe 20. Um, but that takes a very specific, uh, approach in terms of training those qualities. You can't just have people running around randomly and you can't just get it from practicing. <clears throat> so that's been the biggest thing. You know, people think people should look tired when they run like, oh, you didn't get a good workout because you're not huffing and puffing and you're heart rate's not through the roof so that I think that's always the biggest barrier for me is as having people understand that you don't have to run people into the ground to get them better Um, and uh, you know I, I thought it would get better but it's funny how these things regress almost in cycles where you get you work with a team they start understanding and you think okay I've made progress and then another coach comes in and, you know, it might even be an assistant coach who comes and says, oh, why aren't we running more? And then everybody, you know, goes insane again and, and reverts back to, <laughs> you know, the caveman tendencies like, oh, we should be tired. We should be dragging people around. And, and it's unfortunate, but I, I think there's a human, I don't know if it's a culture thing, but there's definitely a human condition of we must feel like we're exhausted. Um, and you even see this in the fitness industry. Where a lot of group fitnesses, you know, whether they're on bikes or circuit training, everybody wants to feel like they got their ass kicked uh, in that forty-five minutes, right? And yeah. that's a good workout. Uh, when you and I know, that's certainly not the best way to get get things accomplished. Whether it's body composition, whether it's general fitness, whether it's uh, speed or a-lactic abilities. So that's that's always the biggest hurdle for me in, when dealing with uh, um, the coaching population.
0: So how do you how do you attack that then from the from the coaches side and the players side? Because I'm guessing if the coaches are thinking that, the players are going to be thinking that as well. So do you attack that differently from that point of view, or is it very much the same the approach?
1: Um, I think it's a little different between the coaches and the athletes. I think the athletes intuitively know, like when you talk to an athlete and say, "Hey, we're going to get you to do quality work, and we're going to get you to run faster, and you'll you'll get better." Uh, or we're going to just kick your ass and run you the whole practice. You know, they're going to opt for the one that you know seems to make more sense, right? Um, so that's that's not a difficult sell. Uh, you'll get a few uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive athletes who want to just you know worry about their you know how they look and, and whether they're tired, but they're usually not the best athletes on the team. The best athletes on the team have you know, a lot of fast twitch fiber and, and don't want to do the work capacity stuff. They, they want to, you know, they want to move fast and and be high quality athletes. So intuitively they know, whereas the coaches, I think, um, the coaches, you have to appeal to, uh, them in a different way, because if you're a coach, you're always worried about getting fired. So you have to get results now, and you want to look like you're doing something, like you're like you're busy, and you're, oh, we're working the hell out of the guys. Oh, you're a good coach because everybody's busy, and we wake up at five a.m. in the morning to work out, and you know, there's all these myths of what a good coach does, as opposed to being somebody who's very cerebral and, and does things uh, in the appropriate amounts. So there's always that, barrier. So when you talk to a coach, you have to start talking about. Uh, deliverables and end results like okay we need to get faster and and honestly the gps data has been useful to demonstrate that to show them what a typical game speed is um, and you can say look on average you're running around at this speed now if we work on qualitative aspects of your running and your speed we can raise that average up by you know getting to higher top speeds and you know um, this is, you know, uh, cause I look uh, like I'm putting a, together this presentation and you'll see that uh, hundred meter female track athletes run faster than most guys do on the field, right? They're running at as high as 25 miles per hour, or, you know, almost, you know, about 11 meters per second. And most people on the field are running a lot slower. So, you know, why don't we work on, you know, training them like track athletes and get them to run at higher speeds and this will transfer to the track. So those types of discussions are helpful, in in saying like the final analysis will have numbers that show that your guys are running faster and getting to the ball quicker or, and and but that that is a process it's not it's not an overnight discussion where you say oh i'm going to do this and then they buy in it you have to you have to show them over you know months years that this is the approach that's going to work for them and some coaches you never get through to so sometimes you have to disguise it there's two things. One, if I can make the coach think that they came up with the idea, then I usually have <laughs> success. Right. So you kind of fool them into it like, hey, remember what you said about, you know, we got to get faster? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did say that. Right. And so, you know, there's that sort of psychology of it. And then the other, the other one is sometimes you have to disguise it. And I'll do low intensity work that makes it look like we're beating the hell out of people, but it's more sort of tempo oriented and it's a little more, um, it's less insane and it's, it's a little more deliberate. And so I get that portion done and that, you know, Hey, what, what, what workout should you come see? Oh, well, you should come see this one because we're going to really beat the hell out of these guys. And, but you know, they see that and then you sneak in your speed work on a different day and and they don't need to see that. Um, so there is a little deceit involved, but I mean, if you want to get things done in the right way, you, you know, you have to find, you know your formula for success, and it's not always going to be an easy road. You know, uh, it's not going to be A to B, it's going to be this circuitous, bizarre route of trying to get the best out of your athletes. I, I you know, that's that's the way it is. I, I you know, I don't know how else to say it.
0: Gosh, no, that's good. Mm-hmm. So, I just want to just want to move on to um, a topic that you've written a lot about uh, and probably spoken a lot about at um, various conferences and podcasts and things like that and that's uh, microdosing and it, it comes to me given the state of um, soccer over here with how, how much game time these guys are actually playing and the the top guys are obviously going moving on to a World Cup, um, playing every three days for hopefully uh, a couple of weeks but probably maybe not and depending on when we uh, get knocked out or whether we win it so it's just to kind of frame what microdosing is as a bit of, as, as a concept, and then maybe some examples of, of it in use, and then we'll maybe dig a little bit deeper.
1: Yeah. Um, it's an interesting term, uh, because it, it tends to, you know, refer more specifically to pharmaceutical testing, um, but also, uh, recreational use of, 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 Different hallucinogens, so uh, definitely. Know, wasn't people, people have said, by that. "Yeah, yeah." People, <laughs> people have said, people have said, "Well, you know, Carl Valley always said, like we should call it micro loading because I don't want to get you know pulled down that rabbit hole of drug use, right?" Like, oh, okay, <laughs> it'd be um, if we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, um, you know, maybe there's some value in actually giving athletes LSD as part of their micro dosing, um, but it really came down to this, you know, during some taper, uh, periods for track and field athletes. And I was doing some work with Charlie Francis and we were talking about, okay, in a 10 day taper, how do you change things? Right. And he said, you know, he used, he would always typically, uh, in the main part of the training, uh, season, he would have people doing like a high day, which would be more speed Heavy lifting, plyos, and then a low day, which would be you know more aerobic systems, general circuits. So you're either you're working at a high intensity or you're working at a low intensity. And then we got into a um, a tapering period, and then we did traditionally high intensity qualities every day uh, in this p- taper period. And so I'm like, well, well, why are you doing it every day? Doesn't this deviate from your high low, you know, forty eight hours for CNS recovery? And he says, well, yeah, it does, but it really doesn't because Uh, We're doing, we're probably operating at 40 to 50% of the volumes uh, for the high intensity components, maybe even less. So, you're not going to have the same impact on the nervous system uh, and definitely not the peripheral system. So, you can actually do high intensity stuff every day and not have uh, the same uh, negative impacts because we've dropped the volume. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then ultimately, we go through a 10 day taper and people would perform magnificently after that taper. Uh, in a competitive environment, so I started, you know, I thought about it, and I said, "Okay, well, why can't we do this all the time?" Particularly, you know, when I started working with uh, NFL teams, and we looked at in-season um, microcycle planning and looking at the week and uh, how much energy and time they had to to work on certain qualities from the strength and conditioning point of view, and they don't have a lot of time, and there's not a lot of energy um, because it's being pulled into different, you know, practice and meetings and even their social lives. So I started to look at how do we use very potent, um, high intensity training components, uh, and training elements to kind of hit them, you know, on a daily basis, uh, in very short periods of time so that we could, uh, First and foremost, maintain qualities. So, maintain speed, maintain strength, maintain explosive qualities, um, and, and in some cases, uh, maybe even advance qualities because we're being much more precise in when we do it, how much we do it, and we're maintaining a very high high intensity of of output. And when you do that, things start to get interesting. Things you actually find that hey, I didn't need to do as much because I'm giving them more time i'm more precise about the application of it and so the adaptation they get is more profound because the the output is higher and i think when we look at classical periodization we think of blocks and the problem with blocks is that you think oh i got this block or the space of time or i've got to plow in all of this Volume and all of this work, and I've got to work on plyos, I've got to work on uh, aerobic qualities, I've got to work on some lactic qualities, possibly, I've got to work on weightlifting, I've got to do speed, I've got. To... And so, you end up actually bogging yourself down by not being as precise and just thinking, I've got to shove everything into this block. Um, when you can probably do things every day in smaller amounts, probably do overall less overall volume but maybe actually a higher volume of high-intensity components because you're stripping away all this crap. Um, so I know I'm sounding very convoluted right now, but I think <laughs> it's just a more precise way of, of dispensing work um, in smaller amounts. And because you dispense something in a smaller amount, the effect on the organism is more profound. And I think you know maybe that goes back to um, looking at taking LSD in very small amounts because, you know, maybe you get a more profound effect. Like if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm smoking marijuana every day, you know, three times a day, four times a day, you know, after a while I tend to get numb to the effects of it. But if I'm very precise with smaller doses, you know, maybe I get a more profound effect. I've never smoked marijuana, so I can't tell you. So I'm just, I'm just kind of surmising that this is what's happening out there. Good. Um, you know, so we you'd have to get Snoop Dogg on to talk about that. Wow, that would be interesting. But Jeez, that's yeah, that's a different podcast.
0: So how does that? So how does that integrate with the stuff that goes on traditionally in the gym? Does that have to fall in line with this microdosing concept, or can, in your opinion, does that kind of continue down its own path alongside this kind of? Sp-
1: Well, there's there's a whole contextual piece, right? So um, if you you don't, like, say, like like in the weight room, if you don't do certain exercises over a a long period of time, like, so let's use Olympic lifting for an example. If you've never used Olympic lifting uh, and you're not skilled at it, it's not a very good tool for you to use any other time during the season because – you're not lifting much weight. You probably don't have much velocity behind your lift. It's probably unsafe. So by virtue of the fact you haven't developed this this skill and this quality and accumulated some work, it's now not a very useful tool to you. Um, same with sprinting. Like I'll say, oh, people should sprint in c- season. And of course, some moron goes, oh, let's start sprinting in season and they pull a <laughs> hamstring. It's like, well, yeah, but you got to do it in the off season too. So if I do, you know, if my volume is at, 100 units in the off season when i bring it down to 30 units in season it's not that difficult and i'm actually very i can do it very easily without getting hurt because i've done 100 units over here and now i'm doing 30 percent of that so if you don't do you know a cer- accumulate a certain amount of work in the off season um you're very limited to what you can do in the in season if all you did was rubber band work and balancing on bosu balls for your off season you're screwed in the in-season. You, you can do 30% of the rubber band BOSU routine in-season. But if you've lifted heavy weights and you've done explosive work and you've sprinted and accumulated a good amount of volume over that off-season period, now you can use these very high intense components in-season uh, to kind of tweak and, and maintain and refine. And and I think that's what people miss out on is you, you, you have to have developed this base of work um, so that you can... Um, you know, be exceptional in season and, and have more tools available to you. And I think um, it's kind of like you're developing your vocabulary in the off season. And so, you know, when you go and you do an interview with somebody, hey, I've got all these words I can draw on because I'm a little smarter because I did all this work in the off season. Whereas if you don't if you don't read any books and so you don't talk to people, and then you have to go do an interview with somebody, you're you know you're you're tongue tied. You don't know what to say. You don't you know you're very uninteresting. Of course, um, I think it's the same. It's the same thing, right?
0: so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with derek i hope you're enjoying part one so in part two more on warm-ups more on mas and more on uh, microdosing. so um, no doubt you'll uh, you'll love hopefully you'll love part two just as much as part one so just before we do get into part two big thanks to the football association the fa for supporting this podcast so they supported a podcast uh, quite a while ago which would was with Sean Cumming from from Bath University. But this is the start of a a bit of a series of uh, of podcasts which are gonna be supported supported by the FA, so big thanks to them guys for for wanting to get involved. Also, big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So if you want to learn a little bit more about Fatigue Science, I suggest you visit uh, the Strength of Science website, so strengthofscience.com, and have a little listen to episode 174 with Ian Duniken. So Ian, in that episode, discusses um, biomathematical modeling, which is heavily involved in the back end of the Fatigue Science Ready Band. So that'll give you a, give, give you a really good outline of, firstly, what the, the modeling is all about, but why that is um, essential for, for team sports. So they can be found on their website at Fatigue Science, but also on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So over to part two with Derek, and hope you enjoy. So, so in a, in a, an example of a kind of Saturday to Saturday structure, which I guess would be kind of NFL style um, playing schedule. Just give us some examples of what that may look like in an in, in-season period.
1: The easiest way to look at it is, you know, if you've worked with a pro team. Um, you're very limited in how much time you have as a strength and conditioning professional. Like I always look at being a track coach and I've never, time was never a limitation. Uh, Energy was to some degree, but time like, oh, we could do this, we could do that. I was kind of, you're kind of your own boss, right? But when you work in a professional sports environment, you're at the mercy of, um the head coach and so the head coach wants to do all their stuff and they'll say things like oh how much do you need for warm-up well i'd really like to have 30 minutes for warm-up how about 10 10. (laughs) 10 10. yeah you're like oh geez what can i do with 10 minutes right and and you can piss and moan about it um but you have to start being very strategic about what you do and um you know, you try to get an extra five minutes. Okay, let's get 15 minutes. And then within that warm-up period, that's something you do every day. So let's establish that right away. Is That's that's the contact time that I have every day. So now you have to be creative at how do I <coughs> use the warm-up to get some high-intensity elements in, whether it's an explosive med ball throw or an acceleration, a sprint, sprint from different positions off your back, off your front, whatever, off your stomach. Uh, some plyos that you can do to actually get people, you know, elastic and explosive. And so I've started to now structure people's warm up to be less of this lollygagging of like going back and forth sides, you know, side shuffles and karaoke and all this other bullshit, and going. <laughs> okay, let's actually ramp people up a bit quicker because one, we habituate very easily as human beings or as organisms, right? So if you if you place less demand on people, guess what? They'll expect less demand. But if you start ramping things up a little quicker and you get into this habit of adding high intensity elements progressively, but more rapidly, then you get responses. You get quicker responses and people fall into uh, fall into being in a high intensity zone a lot quicker. So I've had to actually sit down and go through and structure warmups with different Uh, professionals and say this is how we should do it we should ramp up to doing sprints like an easy way to do it would be like if we were to dumb it down completely and say i'm going to work with a, a, a football or soccer player um you know, as part of the warm up, I would just do short to long progressive sprints and you would start with short sprints over 10 yards and you go 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, and then have a graded sort of intensity scale, maybe change up the, uh, the start types. Um, to increase the intensity. So you'd have a walk in start, a falling start, and then you might have a push up start or a three point starter. And that way you would ramp up the intensity there. And if you gave me 15 minutes of progressive sprints, I bet you that would be a better warm up and a better workout than if you did all these stupid little exercises, you know, these multi whatever movement, you know. Um, things that people have come up with to make it look interesting and make it look like, hey, we're being busy and we're doing all these great stuff and, you know, uh, we're doing muscle confusion. Well, I just think, you know, getting to a higher intensity, one, uh, gets them warmed up better. Two, it, it, it starts... Chipping away from this microdosing point of view of getting high intensity elements in that are not present in the practice. So if I get somebody to accelerate by at the end of this 15 minute warmup, if I get two 30 meter sprints at 95 percent of their output capability, that's better than anything that's happening on the field. And if I do that every day, so you say, oh, well, that's only two reps. But say I did that five days a week. You know, now I have 10 reps over 30. Right. That's 300 meters of good acceleration that they weren't getting in the practice and they weren't getting through your shitty warm-up, Right. So I just, you know, you have to start looking at things this way of what is the exposure to stress. And if it's not happening in practice, then you have to find ways to drop it in as, as frequently as you can. And that's probably the most simple use of a micro dosing or micro loading concept that I can come up with is sneaking things in as part of, Your warm up. The other side of it is you can microdose low intensity components as part of your cool down, and you could do tempo runs at the end of practice, which don't have, um, you know, don't don't have this residual fatigue effect. But you know they can get you know things moving, flushing out you, and you can accumulate aerobic capabilities with a frequent, uh, high frequency approach, loading approach as well. So, I, I mean, I just look at things a little differently uh, maybe than most people who are looking at – I think they look at it based on exercise and what they see visually rather than looking at it from an intensity scale and what the effect on the nervous system and the organism is. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if that helps.
0: No, no, absolutely. And so, so it doesn't – given given that answer, it doesn't particularly make any difference whether you've got a Saturday to Saturday or Saturday Tuesday Saturday. The concept still stays, stays the same in terms of the the methods that you're going to use to actually sneak things in?
1: Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think things can rise and fall depending off. on yeah. what's happening. Like maybe there's a prioritization in your practice. Like, you know, one day is more skill-based. One day is more work capacity and more full field stuff. And so as a strength coach, you're looking at what the coach is giving you or giving the players, and then you're trying to, not mirror those qualities, but you're trying to work on the other end of the spectrum. So if they're doing something that's work capacity based, I have to start stepping up my high intensity components because that's what's lacking from the practice. So you're always looking at what you're missing, and then you're trying to shore it up um, by adding in these micro micro components um, to you know. And, and that that's a, again that you have to flip your perspective and change your mindset and go. I do not want to provide what's happening in practice, nor necessarily in games, because that's already been being done. Uh, so I have to look at other training components that aren't being worked. Um, and this goes back to this whole idea of um, you preparing people for, for, for not getting injured, or injury prevention, or whatever term you want to use. If I am, if I am building qualities that are not being addressed in practice and in competition, I'm making them more resilient, and, and that's the best way to look at it. In my, from my point of view, like I have this graph that uh, shows ground contact time. So on the far left of the graph, it shows that world class sprinters are hitting the ground with a lot of force in less than a tenth of a second. And then you move to the right of the graph, and you go, okay, when somebody does a long jump takeoff, that's about twelve one hundredths of a second. When they do a high jump takeoff, it's about 15 hundredths. When they do a hurdle jump, it's closer to two tenths of a second or a box jumps more to three, four tenths of a second. A direction change is probably half a second, you know, a full direction change off a shuttle. And then you get into longer things, which is like lifting a weight, which might be, might take a second to actually pull a weight off the ground and press it overhead. So that's a second of force application. And when I look at that array of ground contact times, it tells me what I might be missing. So if I'm stuck in that two, three to four tenths of a second, And I'm not working to the right or the left of that. uh, And somebody's running down a field and it tends, say it's an artificial grass turf field, which is very popular in North America. And you have cleats and they stick in the ground and you have to react and turn on muscles in less than two tenths of a second. And you haven't been training in that realm. Well, you're going to be in trouble. So, you know, that's kind of the way I look at it is from a neurological point of view, what are we preparing people for? Hmm.
0: So, just going back to the tempo tempo running side of things that you mentioned there why would you firstly just to kind of i know you've you said before but completely dumb it down what is tempo running why would people employ that over other methods and what, you, what are you going to get out of it
1: um it's, it's basically you know shorter interval runs and, and for sprinters we would probably use 100 meters to 200 meter segments um run them on a soft surface like a grass surface um, at probably anywhere from 50 to 70% of their max velocity capabilities. And, and you have to be careful with that calculation because some of say, well, I run, the, I run the 100 meters in 10 seconds, so that means I'm running 13 second hundreds, which is still pretty fast. But if you're running it on grass and you're running in regular shoes, um, it might be a 15 second effort or a 16 second effort. But basically you're using these shorter segments to target the aerobic energy system And it's disseminated in a way that you're not, you know, getting into this sort of lactic work zone where people are, you know, getting fatigued. And and when I was taught how to do tempo runs, uh, Charlie Francis always said, whatever the velocity of your first one, if we had, you know, 15 runs to do, your 15th one should be at the same time. And there shouldn't any, you shouldn't be dying during the workout. It should be nice and steady. Now, when you first start athletes on tempo runs and they don't have the work capacity, they might feel like it's very tough but once you get in good shape <clears throat> good fitness then the tempo runs you know they're not easy but you know it's it's a nice steady work rate and you're working on more of the aerobic system and, and general strength endurance qualities and so it's it's it tends to be a a, a fitness-based activity uh, a fitness maintenance activity but also a recovery uh, modality as well so why would you use tempo runs over something like MAS? <clears throat> um, I just found that, you know, like uh, we've, you know, we have a lot of people going, well, we have to do, we have to get ready for this. Like a lot of people are always getting ready for some fitness test, um, which may or may not be useful or applicable, but, you know, and a lot of these fitness tests can be very um, uh, lactic oriented, right? You know, like a 300 yard shuttles or, and, just in my history of doing when we've tried to specifically prepare for that stuff, it's actually created more problems. Like we've had more injuries. We've had more, uh, uh, worse, worse, uh, results in terms of their speed qualities. But when we focused on tempo runs and accumulating volume over a, you know, a good portion of time, say 12 weeks, doing it three times a week. Um, we just found that they performed better, um, on, uh, throughout the spectrum. Throughout the energy system spectrum, so they perform better at their short sprints. They perform better at their lactic qualities. They perform better aerobically because you know it it just it was more. I don't know how how to say this, but it was just it was less damaging to them to do uh, aerobic based temporal running uh, to prepare for lactic qualities. It helped buffer um, you know some of the, the the negative. Uh, problems associated with lactic training but it also supported your alactic training and your speed training because it didn't exhaust you all the time and it, it didn't it didn't build in bad habits in terms of uh technical qualities so i i've just kind of gravitated to doing more low intensity aerobic interval based uh training um and not worrying about the specifics of of a test in this you know even for the nfl like I found a lot of people will actually run the test to prepare for the test like you know they'll do 20 the, the 20 yard shuttles or the yo-yo test and i've seen coaches actually just get people to do repeat uh you know 20 meter shuttles or or, or yo-yo test to prepare for it which is insane and in, in my uh you know from where i stand and from my experience so i would rather work on Aerobic qualities that will help feed back in, and also repeat sprint qualities, which will feed back into those tests, but actually make somebody a better player or a better athlete um, and more aerobically fit for recovering. So, you know, that's, and I'm usually just going off my experience. There's a little bit of science that feeds into that. And I think there's some studies that support what I'm saying, but just based on my experience, I've had much better results working on a tempo based uh, interval training program. Mm-hmm.
0: So going back to the first chat around microdosing, how would you convert that to a microdosing kind of principle? Would it just, re- just completely reduce the volume, sneak it in, at, like you say, on the, on the cool-down side of things, and if that's
1: indeed what you are missing from yeah. your practice? I think so, because um, dogmatically, I would always think that I had to do, like for sprinters, we'd always do about 2,000 meters of tempo runs three times a week, so you're getting 6,000 meters per week for a for a, a sprinter 100 meter sprinter and i thought oh okay well we always have to do two thousand meters every time we do tempo and i think a lot of us get caught in those types of traps right where oh this is what we're supposed to do but then i started to think well why couldn't i do a thousand meters six times you know and and so i started to gravitate towards more of that approach and the results were as good if not better um, there was just I, the idea of doing something every day is interesting to me because it I think it helps with your ability to achieve readiness quicker. Um, you like you're always ready um, rather than doing this sort of undulating method of like oh we're gonna go high intensity and exhaust you and then we're go low intensity and try to recover you, um, Why not just keep a steady baseline of work that keeps you ready all the time but also improves your fitness over time? So, I mean, that's, I will still go like at different parts of the season. I will still go to more of a high low approach um, throughout the week, but then I I will not have any hesitation to shift to doing things on consecutive days in the early part of the season and in the later part of the season, um, you know, just to one mix things up, but also I know I can, I I can tap into that readiness uh, factor a little easier when I do things on consecutive days and lower dosages mm-hmm. and so for an in-season an in-season scenario it works very well for a tapering obviously it works well and peaking people it works very well and I you know and even for NFL combine prep I started shifting towards doing things on consecutive days um, because when you go to the con when you go test in a combine scenario you're doing stuff on consecutive days right you don't you know, and, and even in a track meet, you have to go and qualify one day, and then you have to sprint fast the next day too. So, getting people to habituate towards doing high intensity stuff every day, you know, even in life is probably better because um, they're always ready. Um, but I think you know, and, and I'm not you know crapping on traditional periodization, but this this idea of getting people to do th- well, you're going to do this now, and then we're going to do more of it later, right? It sounds very Seinfeldish, right? Like you're gonna, <laughs> you
0: know,
1: no, you can't, no, you can't do any high intensity today because we did that yesterday, right? <laughs> and everybody gets really, um, you know, anxious about, you know, we have to do it this way, and I and I would tend to disagree, you know, based on experience that no, you don't have to do that. I've had, you know, I've had some really bizarre successes where I've done stuff at a high intensity uh, on consecutive days, but I've just been very careful about how much. Um, so I think people have to recalibrate how they think about these things and you know what is the necessary volume on a given day. Well, it might be less than you think, but then that allows you to do it again on the next day. Because um, I, I think a lot of people will look like, I used to do this. I used to have people do sprint training and then I'd wait till they started to have a couple of bad reps, right? So if they ran, uh, you know, let's use 100 meters as an example. So they ran, oh, all the reps were at 10 flat. And then I waited for them to drop to 10 five after a couple of reps. And then I stopped. Why don't I just kind of anticipate, you know, based on experience that things aren't going to go well and maybe nip it in the bud a little earlier, do less volume so I can do something again on the next day? You know, that's it's very hard for people to do that. Mm-hmm. How does that fit in with the with the coach side
0: of things? Selling that to the coach that we are going to do something every day when they're traditionally expecting one big session, lads coming out of the gym dripping, you know that kind of scenario.
1: It depends on who your coach is. Like you know, there's there's again, if I talk about the North American experience, most coaches don't even know what's going on on the strength and conditioning side, which is which is bizarre because they end up hiring the strength coach, right? You know, and they'll say things like, oh, he's a good guy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you know, he, he he's a good motivator. It's like, okay, well, is that what you hired him for? Um, whereas I, I would think internationally, maybe there's a little more integration between what the coach does and the strength coach does. Uh, because, you know, from a coaching education point of view, I would like to think that, a lot of sport coaches have had to go through and learn about energy systems and periodization and and, and these types of concepts. So maybe that's an easier conversation with if I'm working in, in Australia or the UK. But it's definitely not a common conversation in North America. Um, hopefully, it gets better. But sometimes, you know, you, you won't. They won't even. You won't even talk about what you did. You know, they'll say things like, "How are the guys looking?" You know, are they worried about injuries? Um, you know, usually people don't care until one. People are getting hurt or you're losing. <laughs> and probably I would say getting hurt is probably the worst, is probably the most important one. But even when they're losing, people aren't looking at what they're doing and, and trying to, you know, change what they're doing. You know, they'll blame some other thing, right? So, um, so yeah, I I just think it's, if I have to have that conversation and the coach is knowledgeable, it's not a difficult conversation, you know, if they're, if they're educated. Um, but most of the time I'm not really having those conversations. I'm just doing what I, I feel is best. So just to
0: not go off on a tangent, but just to kind of dive into that a little bit more. So how do you, as someone that consults, obviously not there all the time, but are you being brought in by the coach or are you been brought in by the kind of performance department? Because if you aren't brought in by the coach, and he's not particularly up to speed of what you are doing. How are you justifying what you are doing right to continue to be there as a consultant? Does that make um, sense?
1: Usually, yeah, I can. <laughs> um, uh, usually, I'm brought in by the performance staff or the medical staff or you know the combination of the two. So it's like strength, strength and conditioning. Um, it it depends. Every team is different, and. and for the most part, th- there's different uh, power dynamics within e- different teams, right? So some people, uh, you'll go to a certain team and you'll know that, oh, okay, the guy who's the head athletic trainer is the guy who really calls the shots, or it could be maybe a, a team doctor or a team physiologist, or maybe the strength coach has a lot of pull. That's not very common, but sometimes you know that does happen if they have a really good relationship with the head coach. But I I have not been ever brought in by a head coach, and there's there's a lot of again the politics of it is very interesting because say you like I've had friends who've been brought in by the general manager or the owner, and that oh, wow. usually that usually hasn't worked very well <laughs> no, <laughs> because you have, ex, you have yeah you have existing staff that you know kind of run things right, and when you're brought in by somebody that high up. it, it creates a rift. Um, if you're brought in by the head coach, um, and that head coach doesn't necessarily, you know, get along with the head trainer or, you know, there's all these weird things going on. So I think when you're brought in, you have to understand one, who's bringing you in and what, what they want from you. And that, that's a huge part of, of diagnosing the whole issue. Um, and then once you understand, okay, I'm being brought in to help this person or this this group of people, it gets a lot easier. But I have never been brought in by a head coach because I don't think the head coach is thinking about that. He's thinking about personnel. He's thinking about strategy. He's thinking about will he have a job next year. Um, but that doesn't necessarily translate into I really need to nail down strength and conditioning and understand what's going on here. Absolutely not. That never happens. Uh, if it does, I wish somebody would tell me about it. Um, <laughs> Fine. you know they have a real general sense of what's happening on a strength and conditioning side and again it comes back to are guys healthy um do guys look tired but there might be different reasons for that so i don't know it's it's i wish i could have a better answer for you and say like this is absolutely how it works and this is how i get results and 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 you know how am i how am I evaluated? I would think, you know, you'd like to be evaluated based on how the team is doing in the standings. Are they winning or losing? So that's one. Are they making the postseason the playoffs? Great. What does the injury um, profile look like? What's the injury history? And a lot of the time, when I've been involved with the team, strangely enough, they tend to have less hamstring injuries. Um, you know, and that might be and, and and it might have something to do with what I'm doing, and it might be totally, you know, luck, Uh, but I I tend to have pretty good luck in that regard. So um, because I'm just trying to introduce elements that weren't there before. And, um, you know, other than that, I have to have a good relationship with the staff. I can't go in there and say, you guys are a bunch of morons. This is what you should be doing, right? You kind of look at what they're doing well, and you try and supplement that with some knowledge that you bring to the table. But it's difficult. It's not, It. it's not, it's definitely not science. Everybody talks about sport science and I would say most of the stuff that goes on with teams has nothing to do with science. It has to do with personality. It has to do with, you know, power dynamics and social dynamics within the team. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm I hope, to. I,
0: I hope I didn't absolutely stitch you up with that question, by the way. It's just, um, just interesting to know, cause it's obviously different, different countries become different, um, challenges and different organizations and structures and all that kind of thing. So hopefully I didn't completely stitch you up there.
1: No, no, it's, it's, it's a good question to ask because I think a lot of people on the outside think it's very cut and dried. Yeah. yeah. And it's absolutely not. It's, it's uh, it would be like you and I walking into the white house and going, Oh, you know, from what we see on the outside, it's really dysfunctional. And then you get on the inside, you're like, Oh, okay. There's all these things I didn't consider. And you can, You can blame and point fingers at people, but you have to see what circumstances they're working uh, within to really have a good assessment of how they're doing and and how things can be improved. And um, yeah, that's all I can say is that you don't. Every situation is different, and you have to. I think if you're in the performance uh, industry, you have to best equip yourself um with a a broad array of skills. Like you you could be the best strength and conditioning coach and track coach and and uh, or data analyst possible. And then you get into the situation where nobody gives a shit about that stuff. And they just want to make sure that you got their back and you know you're a good guy and you get along with the athletes and you don't piss people off. And I think that's people should understand that that's very, very important in the in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. So,
0: and that's that's reality, isn't it? That's it is. that's how it is in these
1: places. Yeah, it is. You know, like it's nice to say, like I'm going to get in there and get results. Okay, well, let's see how that goes, right? Um, and and that's that's interesting because you see that all the time. The first thing that when it's and I don't want to crap on American college football, but you'll see somebody gets fired and then they clear out the entire staff and then the new staff come in and go, oh yeah, what the other guys were doing was absolute shit, and we're gonna show people how to do it, and then everybody gets rabdo, right? So, um <laughs> so you know. That coming in and and breaking all the furniture is not necessarily the way to do it. You got to understand what what the circumstances were before you walked into this joint, and then try to do your best to uh, construct something that works, um, you know, works within that the confines of that environment, and not try to be this, you know, I'm going to solve everything kind of person because you're not, you know, I'm not saying don't be confident. But at the same time, you know, have perspective.
0: Of course. Yeah. Well, I'm just gonna, um, I'm just gonna do a little roundup because it's nearly, it's nearly approaching an hour. I know you've, um, you've got a full day ahead of you. So, <laughs> where can, where can, uh, in, in rainy, rainy Vancouver, and actually, it's still not raining here. So that's, uh, that's an oh, absolute that's still positive. Here. <laughs> <laughs> but where can? Um, where, where's the best place for, I mean, I know you you write on a, um, a couple of sites. Where's the best place for people to get a bit more info on the on the stuff we've spoken about?
1: Um, I, I tend to, I've been shifting a lot of my emphasis on a site, a new site, sprintcoach.com. And a lot of that, again, is going to be about performance-based um, uh, stuff, whether it's, it's, and it is sprinting. And I, I'm kind of using that as a bit of a springboard for, introducing the micro dosing and the micro loading sorry and the um this idea of of you know using no around there yeah yeah yeah. um (laughs) yeah i'll get a lot of spam now um but if you if you use this idea of running is this the highest intensity thing you can do and then things kind of branch off of there so I'm, i'm using that and then we still Contribute uh, articles and get other people to contribute to strengthpowerspeed.com. And that's, I would say that's more of a generalist site in terms of um, preparation for sports and, and strength and conditioning. Um, so, yeah, I still, still pushing hard on both those sites and, you know, trying to, trying to contribute to uh, other, like, I, people ask me to write articles for different sites, like Simply Faster. I'll write a few articles for them and, you know, I'm not, I'm not really tied to one particular uh, site. I'll, I'll try to, you know, get out there as much as possible.
0: Mm-hmm. So have you owned sprintcoach.com for a while? I've something owned something it new?
1: for a long time. Like, I don't know. I was going to well, say, geez. Years, I just sat on it. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I'm not. Do sw- you have any offers for people to buy it? Uh, I think, yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So I haven't. And I think, uh, the funny thing is, is it's sprintcoach.com and I think I had people who are, uh, NASCAR people were asking me about it. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. I get it. NASCAR is quite long, you know, to actually go around the track. I don't know, 500 times or whatever it is. But, um, yeah, I, I just think, uh, um, yeah, I I figured i I think I'm smart enough now to write about sprinting, so let's kinda of launch this and get it moving in the right direction and, and then try to connect all the social media uh to that too. And that's usually the best place to find me on social media is just at Derek M. Hansen, uh M for Matthews is my middle initial and um just try to funnel things through those those channels right now.
0: Nice. So there's not a Twitter handle for sprint coach Charles coming through you? i uh,
1: I was you know i don't know like i i I, maybe Uh you're smarter about the social media thing but i'm wondering should i have separate you know twitter facebook i do have a facebook account for the sprint coach but do i have a separate instagram do i have i don't know like i i figure it's hard to manage and it's just another thing
0: to manage another thing to think about yeah it's tough it's tough going if you're managing it yourself
1: Yeah. So I I just figured somebody just said to me, people are going to sprintcoach.com because of you. So just make it about you. I'm like, okay, well, I I really don't think that way. I've tried to be not very overly centered on myself, but I guess whatever, that's an easy way for people to find me.
0: Good. Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, giving me time for a chat. Really appreciate it. And um, I'll put all the links on the site and when it goes out, I'll obviously link to uh, Twitter, etc. So, um, so yeah, all good. Thank you very much for your time, mate.
1: Yeah, anytime. Thanks for having me on, uh, Rob. I, I enjoyed it. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, I made some sense. So, absolutely, sweet. We'll keep in touch. Cheers, Eric. Sounds good. Thanks, Rob. Cheers, mate.
0: Thanks for tuning in to episode 183 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Derek. So, like I said at the start, more coming on microdosing in uh, in the episode next week with Mike McGuigan. So, also big thanks to the FA, Fatigue Science, uh, Forstex, and Val Performance for all spon- sponsoring and supporting this episode today. So, if you want to check any of them guys out, Fatigue Science, uh, FatigueScience.com, Val Performance, Valperformance.com, and Forstex at Forstex.com. So, like I said, Mike coming up next week and some really interesting guests uh, in the weeks following that. So thanks again for tuning into the podcast and I will speak to you soon.